When people talk about climate change and lowering greenhouse gas emissions, interest in biofuels has, by and large, come down to which country you live in. For some countries, such as Brazil, they're a well-established part of their current energy system. It dates back in, in you know, the 70s because of the 1973 oil crisis. Brazil has been incentivizing uh, biofuels as a more sustainable way and uh, to reduce dependence on fossil fuels. But for others, their use raises environmental concerns around deforestation and using land to grow crops for fuel. What we want to see is, yeah, a ban on food-based biofuels. We should not be burning food crops uh, in, in gas tanks. Predominantly the reason they're not a bigger part of the, of the existing bioenergy system is that the environmental credentials are not yet demonstrated at scale. But advances in technology now mean waste from farm animals, used cooking oil, even coffee grinds can all be used for biofuel to power cars, trucks and planes. Today on the Energy Podcast, biofuels, where next? This is the sound of hundreds of thousands of hectares of sugarcane being harvested at Ryzen in Brazil, a biofuels producer and joint venture between Shell and Cosan. And it's a good place to start because currently 3% of the world's biofuel is produced here. Sugarcane is grown across 860,000 hectares of cultivated land. To give you an idea of size, that's about 10 times the size of New York. And when all that sugarcane grows, it not only removes carbon dioxide from the air, but the fuel it's made into, ethanol, emits fewer emissions than fossil fuel. And ethanol isn't just for fuel. You'll find it in a whole host of products that you may use at home. Everything from face creams to food. What are also being made at Ryzen are so-called advanced biofuels or second-generation biofuels. They're made using more of the sugarcane plant itself and some are made using sustainable raw materials, not from crops, but from products that would simply be thrown away, such as waste vegetable oil. Is this advanced fuel the key to more people around the world using biofuel? Leo Pontes is Executive Vice President for Downstream at Ryzen and joins me now from Brazil. For people who may not know, and although I know millions of people in Brazil probably are very familiar with what you do, what type of biofuels are made at Ryzen and give us an idea of what they're used for in everyday life? We are a unique renewable energy company. We, we use the sugarcane biomass as a source to produce uh, biofuels and bioenergy, if you like, or power. We are fully integrated, as we say, so from the soil through until the tanks of uh, the cars and, uh, and also from the biomass we produce through until the grid. Our number one product is in terms of volumes and widely used already is what we call the first generation ethanol. And it's widely used to replace gasoline. It can be either blended into gasoline uh, or in, in the case of Brazil, specifically, each and every petrol station around the, co- the country has E100, as we call it, which is 100% ethanol. The second generation uh, is, first of all, is a proprietary raisins technology. 
because we've been, uh, as far as we're concerned, the only one successful in terms of producing it at a commercial scale, if you like. And it consists of uh, taking the straw or the leaves of the, the sugar cane and processing it in a specific plant to that purpose. And the beauty of that second-generation ethanol, which is considered a very advanced biofuel, is that we can increase by 50% productions at the same planted area. We're not spending agriculture, you feel like. And that's quite impactful in terms of uh, greenhouse uh, emissions. And, well, generally speaking, our, our footprint is pretty green. One of the big criticisms of biofuels is that the land used to grow them should be used to grow food. And another argument is around deforestation, forests that are chopped down to make way for land for crops to be grown. What do you say to that? Uh, first of all, uh, uh, it's important to remind that sugarcane plantations are very far away from the Brazilian reserve areas, such as the world-renowned Amazon rainforest. Yeah? So, in fact, we're more than 2,000 kilometers away from it. In Haizing, we have satellite images from the 1960s. Every 15 minutes is, in fact, pictures from satellites that illustrates zero deforestations in 100% of our areas that we produce. In fact, we manage 1.6 million hectares of, uh, of area, of which 27% are protected areas. There's no, there's no other country in the world outside of Costa Rica, as far as I'm concerned, that has such a sustainable managing of the, the land, if you like. The way that we use the land in Brazil is a very responsible and legal way. In fact, from 2009, 2009, the expansion of any crop is regulated by what we call the sugarcane agroecological zoning, which is a federal government guidelines, if you like, uh, to that end. And in addition to that, we go beyond, and in fact, we have made commitments to increase by 15% energy extraction from the same planted area. What's the most exciting thing you see in meeting that challenge of providing more fuel to meet demand, but having to make that much cleaner? Well, I think that the, the, the second generation ethanol is definitely something very impactful. Ethanol is a reality, so the blending programs uh, worldwide are very successful in reducing carbon footprint. And because it can represent, let's say, a 50% increase in productivity at the same planted area, I think that also on the biogas uh, side of things, I think there's quite a lot of biomass worldwide. And in our example here, we have up and running, it's a reality, one of the largest biogas plants in the world. And, and then we are, as we speak, converting biogas into power and also running tests to use biomethane uh, in, in replacement of diesel. So we are very much excited about those initiatives. Leo Pontes, thanks for joining me. For many parts of the world where electrifying road transport is too expensive, biofuels offer a lower carbon solution that works today. Shell is aiming to scale up its lower carbon biofuel production over the coming decades, and the International Energy Agency estimates between now and 2025 the amount of biofuel made globally will increase by 4% year on year, mainly in Brazil, China and the US. But in road transport, for example, it will still only meet around 5% of energy demand by then. 
why? I'm joined now by Dr Jem Woods, Reader in Sustainable Development at Imperial College London, Matt Hammond, Director of Environmental Sciences at the National Biodiesel Board based in the US, and Matthew Tipper, Vice President for New Fuels Downstream at Shell. Dr Jem Woods, I'll come to you first. Why aren't biofuels a bigger part of our energy system? I think predominantly the reason they're not a bigger part of the of the existing bioenergy system is that the environmental credentials are not yet demonstrated at scale. There's, that's, they're still highly controversial from that perspective. Um, so, for example, a big expansion of biofuels might drive a big expansion of land use change. And I think we'll keep coming back to this topic later on. Um, and so the real uh, sets of questions underpinning uh, whether biofuels have benefits or not really sit with the agricultural and land use sectors about whether their expansion, in particularly in terms of the production of feedstocks, can be done in ways that allows uh, sustainable land management, sustainable development in, in the agriculture and forestry sectors. Which industries do you think can benefit most from their increased use, Matthew? I think in the in the long run, by which I mean, you know, 20, 30 years out, we will always need hydrocarbons for certain sectors. I mean, classically, that would be aviation, but also marine, heavy goods applications, uh, agricultural, you know, farming machinery, and in chemicals production. So materials produced from chemicals. I think in the short term, however, I mean, nearly you know, 99% of our transportation sector runs on liquids. So for the, for the next 10 or 20 years, there is simply a huge existing market of existing uh, cars and trucks and vans and such like that are going to require liquid fuels. So there's also the legacy fleet to consider as well as you know, the long-term perspective. We have a very large biofuels business in Brazil, which produces uh, ethanol from sugarcane. And from that crop, we get both food and fuel. So we produce sugar, we produce so-called first-generation ethanol from, the, from some of the sugar. And in addition to that, from some of the waste materials, we can produce a so-called second-generation product called the cellulosic ethanol, made, made from the waste materials. It is possible to conceive of land use meeting multiple objectives with a single crop. Jim Woods, what else should we be looking at um, in terms of what already exists? Um, I think there's some, some really interesting points that, that arise, and, and biomethane is one of them. So as, as Matthew was responding particularly about, for example, sugarcane ethanol, but it's also true for palm biodiesel, what we see is you can look at the crop and call the crop the enemy, but you can also look at the system and say, how can it be improved? So, if, for example, in a sugarcane-based system, as Matthew said, some of the readily available sugars uh, can be directed either flexibly towards ethanol for, for as a transport fuel, as a gasoline displacement, or towards the food markets and, and actually potentially also towards biochemicals and biomaterial production. But then you get these uh, waste stream, what might be called waste streams, but byproducts and co-product streams. And you can treat those waste streams with anaerobic digestion and generate biomethane. Now, that biomethane can go back into the process energy for converting the sugarcane, but it could also go into providing methane for the transport infrastructures and, and towards providing mechanical power in, in sugarcane cultivation. 
And so you, you see in one direction, you see an ability to improve the production of, of a single crop. And the same thing's true in, in, in palm oil production. We see a need for the regulatory system to really step back and start rewarding good practice across a whole set of metrics. So when we talk about the word sustainability, it's not just the sustainability of the crop being produced, but it's also how does it impact on carbon, on greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, you mentioned palm oil there, and that's one of the more well-known examples of a raw material used for biodiesel. That's to say, the stuff that goes in your car. And it's largely criticised. The European Parliament has banned the use of palm oil in biofuels in Europe by 2030. It's perhaps one of the things that if someone doesn't know anything about biofuels or biodiesel, they may recognise. And it's been described as the cure being worse than the disease. Is that something you agree with? Or are people misunderstanding this? Well, I think there are fundamental sustainable development questions underpinning um, my response. So if you, if you step back and say, okay, so oil palm, the crop that's producing the palm oil, is a very efficient producer. It's a, it's a highly productive perennial crop. It's, it's a crop where you don't need to go and plough up the land. You know, um, Matt, you mentioned soy, for example. Although there are newer ways to cultivate that crop, you don't need to go with palm oil. You don't need to go and plough up the land. You plant a tree and that produces very productive amounts of, of oil. So on the one hand, you can think of oil palm production as a very sustainable crop. You know, what a lovely crop. But on the other hand, the expansion, which actually has not really been driven by biofuel demand, the expansion of oil palm plantation area and production, it's been driven by the I think 10 to 20,000 products that have palm oil in them in terms of cosmetics and food, etc. It's been driven by that. Matt Herman, your, your thoughts, you were nodding along. Something around 70% of the palm oil production today goes to food and about 20% to cosmetics with a balance of you know 5 to 6% going to biofuels. So we have to make sure that when we're having these discussions, it's not a, a tail wagging the dog. What are all of the environmental and societal values that we're getting from a single acre of land? So like Jim pointed out with palm oil, oil palm, for example, you will get more oil per acre than than just about any other crop. So it's the best way to convert readily available solar energy into a, a usable commodity that uh, folks in Malaysia, Indonesia, and other developing parts of the world can sell. Matthew Tipper, what do you think are the solutions uh, in this space going forward? The question of the, the episode is biofuels, where next? What do you think? You know, essentially for me, you know, it can be summarized as, as having the right crop in the right place. And, and that, that is a difficult question to answer, but that is the clearly the intent. The end game, you know, in principle, is to reduce the land use required for, for bioenergy. And that draws us into this use of um, co-products and byproducts of the agricultural system, the forestry system, cities, uh, and indeed industry. So there's a whole range of byproducts and co-products we call wastes. That, can, that are sources of hydrogen and carbon that can be converted into low carbon fuels. And so that I think is um, you know, an interesting area for development. And we're beginning to see now the first projects being built to do exactly that. The 
Paris Agreement and the goal of, you know, lowering emissions um, by 2050. Biofuels, are they going to feature in meeting that goal? Matt Herman, your thoughts? I think a lot of times we see uh, folks find the magic technology that they can convert biomass into a a product and it makes money and they want to go after that. I think we have to ask ourselves, uh, what's the most efficient use and processing of that biomass resource? Because to Matthew Tipper's point, um, there will be certain duty cycles, there will be certain uh, end uses that electricity is the best option. So when I think of Europe, you know, electricity is going to come to push out diesel in the light duty light duty uh, vehicle. You know, that's a different story than we have here in the United States. We're using large amounts of diesel in the transportation sector, something, you know, over a billion barrels a year. So even if we through electrification and efficiency uh, say reduce that to 75%, there's still a large demand for distillate fuel going forward. So we have to make sure that you know, when competing other, other competing interests for things like land, that we're processing that biomass in the most efficient way so we're getting the most usable fuel out of it and thus the most work. And Dr. Woods, I'll let you have the, the last word of the crystal ball looking into the future uh, of biofuels. I see really, and it's not just me, you know, it's emerging in the, in, in the wider academic literature, but there's a really exciting potential to match advanced biofuel, bioenergy supply chains into the need to manage these big surpluses of, of electricity that are going to be produced as we really ramp up uh, wind and solar power and other forms of electricity production, which are predominantly from in, intermittent sources of energy. And so there's some, as I said, it, it is really exciting, actually. Thank you all very much for joining me today. As we've just heard there, one of the more well-known raw materials used for biodiesel that causes global concern is palm oil. Mighty Earth is a global environmental campaign organisation that works to protect forests, conserve oceans and address climate change. The CEO is Glenn Horowitz, who joins me now. When it comes to palm oil, what are your main concerns? So palm oil historically has driven over 30,000 square miles of uh, deforestation. Um, it's, the, it's been the number one driver of deforestation in the paradise forests of Southeast Asia. So, uh, you know, the overall impact of palm oil has been a real disaster. And uh, there's, palm oil is used for many things. Um, the number one use is food. Uh, so it's an ad- in, in the West, it's an additive in uh, cookies, crackers. It's used to make soap and shampoo also. Uh, and in India and uh, to some extent China and elsewhere in Asia, it's used as a cooking oil. Um, that demand is primarily what has driven this destruction. In you know the last ten years, especially, there's been a surge in demand for burning palm oil as a biofuel, and what you know the, the challenge we're having a big enough challenge reducing deforestation for palm oil just dealing with the basic food personal care products demand. Then you throw in this you know almost you know theoretically unlimited demand from burning it in in cars, and it makes the problem a lot worse. So when a country like India and, you know, one of their um, ministers said, you know, biofuel is the way forward in regards to energy, you think it's actually having, a, you know, the, the converse effect that, that many people think it's having? 
if anything that you're using a crop that could be used for food to use it for fuel is very likely to have a negative impact because it takes a lot of land to grow food. And if you're suddenly diverting that into fuel, it can have the impact of raising crop prices, raising food prices for people um, and creating even more demand. Uh, and so that's that's the the fundamental challenge that we see. It's not just palm oil. It's true of you know corn ethanol here in the United States, soy biodiesel, which is grown in South America and the United States and elsewhere. Sustainable palm oil is something um, that gets discussed. Just outline to us what that is um, and whether you think that is something that could potentially address this. Um, moving to a kind of cleaner energy uh, source. You know, we, we don't really call palm oil sustainable given its history. And we've been leading the charge for the last, uh, you know, seven, eight years to drive the world's largest palm oil companies to eliminate deforestation and land grabbing throughout their supply chain. The good news is we've had some great success. So uh, when we started this work uh, in 2011, deforestation year in, year out was about a million acres a year. In 2020, it had dropped to less than 100,000 acres. But the single thing we're probably the most worried about is that if demand for biofuel continues to surge, it could undo all of these gains that are really just, you know, are, are, are quite new and the progress that we've made. Because, you know, we're able to stop deforestation with the current demand. But if you see palm oil demand keep growing because there's this uh, undiminished market for biofuels, uh, it's going to be a real challenge. We talk about the Paris Climate Agreement a lot, and obviously that gives us a 30-year window between, between now and 2050. Um, do you see biofuels having a part to play at all from now to 2050? What we want to see is, yeah, a ban on food-based biofuels. We should not be burning food crops uh, in, in gas tanks. I think when it goes beyond that, there should be an honest scientific scrutiny of non-food-based biofuels for, you know, if they have the ability to bridge until we have a completely electrified or other, you know, other means of, of fueling transportation and, and the broader economy. I was just about to say the, the title of the episode is Biofuels Where Next, but I think you've just, I think you've just, uh, <laughs> you just answered that. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I think Biofuels Where Next is electrification. Glenn Horowitz from Mightyeth. Thank you very much. But electrification is a long way off for long-haul journeys by sea and air, and biofuels like sustainable aviation fuel can help to reduce emissions in the nearer term for shorter journeys. And timing is key to this debate. Low-carbon biofuels made from waste are already making their mark, and companies such as Shell are looking to scale up their use. Could one answer to lowering carbon emissions actually be sitting in our household rubbish bins. You've been listening to the Energy Podcast brought to you by Shell. You can find the Energy Podcast on Spotify, Apple and Google. Just hit subscribe and you can listen to all the other episodes on everything energy related. The Energy Podcast was produced by Fresh Air Production and I must remind you that the views you've heard today are those of the people featured and not Shell or its affiliates. I'm Bryony McKenzie. Thank you for listening and goodbye.